The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's May 18th, the time is 4.05, and on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Marissa Jordan. Later in the show, we'll have Community Calendar, and Nick Weaver brings you his Modest Mouse Mouth Review. This week he reviews Night Fades by Double King, and Jake Winters brings you Snowverated. This week he reviews the film Only God Forgives. Alex Hoppy brings you an interview from with Dr. Young on dark energy. And Marissa reports on how HB2 could affect North Carolina tourism this summer. And Jamie Halla also brings uh, some HB2 to the table with Mookfest and Hopscotch information. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. Welcome to Eye on the Triangle. I am Alex Hoppy, and we are talking today about physics and the origin of the universe. And joining me today is... I'm Albert Young, a professor in the physics department. Dr. Young is doing a fantastic experiment over at... The National Institute of Standards and Technology in Gaithersburg, Maryland. For me, it's, it's one of these concepts where it seems incredible to me that we should be talking about dark energy. Even though it's, it's perfectly acted out, uh, and how Einstein developed his theory for the large-scale structure of the universe. Because, of course, there was a huge leap forward by using general relativity. But Einstein's initial assumption, of course, because all the data pointed this way, was the same as the Babylonian approach. He wanted to try to model at the biggest uh, scales a static universe. He had that cosmological constant in That's there, right? That's correct. And that was his big, big yeah. mistake that we, we all love to harp on him. Nobody's perfect. Right. Well, so – and he, you know, he, he said – this is my biggest mistake. Oddly, that might have been his greatest insight because what we've learned through the work of Hubble and Humus and his assistant that, that, we, uh, that the universe is expanding. It's not static. And so we had to kind of throw away this idea of having a downward contraction due to all of the gravitational attraction of the universe be canceled by, by a dark energy. We've actually had to do more than just that. In fact, right now we think that Dark energy more than cancels the contraction of the universe. It actually helps determine the fate of the universe as an ever-expanding and accelerating uh, 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 space-time that we live in, which is a very different picture from what Einstein started with. But he gave us those tools to interpret it. What this means is that there is a huge fraction of everything which we don't know what it is. I mean, it's, what is the dark energy? We don't know what it is, but it is there's more energy density in that than anything else by a factor of two. This dark matter you talk about, that's the next most uh, uh, abundant thing in the universe. And that is about, uh, you know, so there's about 
70% dark energy and 25% dark matter. And then there's only about 5% of the of the energy density is matter we know, the good old knock on wood stuff that we bump into on in everyday wait, wait, basis. Wait, just 5% of right. the entire universe. Even less, but right around there, yeah. It's incredible that thinking about the large-scale structure of the universe has led us to believe there's some fluid, some, some something, some interaction, some something everywhere in space, which is the most important and abundant thing in space, and we don't know what it is. So that's, that's, the, that's the draw for an experimentalist. Me, I'm an experimentalist. I'm not a theorist. So for me, it's incredible to think that everywhere around me is something I don't understand, and it's more important than anything else. So the history of this idea was Einstein introduced the cosmological constant because he didn't want the universe to collapse, okay? Mm -hmm. He wanted to be static. He had no idea what it might be. It's a repulsive interaction that holds the universe up. What is it? Well, anyway, he threw it in there. That's fine. And then he took it away because he said, oh, the universe is expanding. I guess I can't do that. And then we put it back when we finally did precise enough measurements of the expansion of the universe to understand how fast things are changing and to realize that you can't explain the way the universe is evolving without some additional outward pressure of some sort. So, so there you are. Here's something causing pressure. It's everywhere in space. All over the place. Right. Now, it, it actually wasn't until quite recently, maybe the last 15 years, I'm not exactly sure of the genesis of the first of these models, where, where theorists said, okay, okay. So, so you can just say it's there. You can say there's a cosmological constant and it's there. Or you can make a mechanism. You can make some interaction that does this. Now, when you do that, then you have to explain why it was something that is, seems to be getting stronger now at later times in the universe relative to when this crazy Big Bang happened, right? Because it's right. something that's pushing us and accelerating us more. And there's a larger fraction of the, the overall uh, uh, evolution rate of the universe now than it was back then. That's how it works. That's how we know it's there. We'd be in a universe that was kind of natural to expect, right? Where well, you don't know what the boundary conditions are, but one reasonable universe is it's everything is gravitational, normal mm -hmm. matter. Then we go out, and if we're fast enough at the beginning, right, then we slow down, but we all escape each other. And so we expand forever, but we're always slowing down, right? Mm -hmm. We're always slowing yeah. down. The acceleration rate's very well fixed for only gravity, okay? It's an understood thing, of course. Or if we don't have enough velocity, we go out to a certain point, and then big crunch, okay? We don't got that. We don't have either of those things. We got something where not only are we expanding, but the slowdown is not the right rate for us to, 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 to actually slow to nothing. We're actually speeding up relative to that picture. We're, we're accelerating. There's something there. Okay, so one way to explain this is that instead of having something which is sort of constant and as space goes bigger, it has a bigger and bigger fraction of the total gravitational energy. Instead, what if there's something that is turned off when the universe is very small, but turns on as we expand because density is getting lower, right? We're expanding, right. matter is separating from each other. Maybe as the density gets lower, this thing gets more important. Interesting. Okay. So that's a theory of dark energy. And these theories now exist and, and, uh, and have been out there for a little while now. Um, but it's only quite recently that we realized we could look for it in the lab. We could look for these dark energy candidates. So finally... Uh, you know, just very, very recently, we started being able to do direct laboratory tests instead of astrophysical measurements to put a limit on what the dark energy might be and to test for these theories. And the theories we can look for are so the ones of, that are suppressed. We're kind of ruling out different particles that we think. That exactly. So interactions for us, forces for us are mm -hmm. like particles. 
the, the particle that is responsible for this possible idea of dark energy is called the chameleon field chameleon. because it changes its strength as there's more when there's more matter around it's weaker and then okay. when as as the universe expands it gets stronger so it responds to its environment okay so it's a weird it's not it's not like any other interaction we got no i can't say i've heard of any field that acts mm. like that no. no so but okay so so how do you look for one so it's everywhere in space but it cares how much matter density is there so now imagine you have a tank, okay? Okay. And a particle like a neutron is passing through the tank. Now, if there's a lot of gas atoms in there, then the density could be relatively high, right? It could be atmospheric gas, it could be less. And it turns out that the density that this chameleon field has to care about, the where it has to start switching off is at densities of about a 10,000th to a thousandth of an atmosphere. So we can, we can easily make that. Yeah, so that's easy. You can take a vacuum pump and you can go from air pressures down to below that density. And the interesting thing is when the densities are low, these pressures where you're already below an atmosphere, the neutrons pretty much don't feel the gas. But they might feel the chameleon field if we look for a difference. So what we do is we take a species of gas for which we know that the neutron interactions with the gas is, produces a very small effect and we compare what happens when we have two paths for the neutrons, one where the chameleon is never present, for example, we could do mm -hmm. this, or the chameleon is always present. So you can either have a totally evacuated cell, right, and one, and then one you're filling with gas to turn off the chameleon field, or you can have one that's always at a relatively high pressure, chameleon field off, right, and you slowly increase the pressure at different stages in the empty cell. That's the way we do our experiment. Okay. So when you do that, you start with a path where there is no chameleon and a path where there is, and then you turn it off. You look at the pressure effect. So the beautiful thing about this experiment is we're, we're, we end up measuring what happens when you split the neutron into two paths and recombine them again. You just look at an interference pattern, just as you were saying for the light. There's bright spots and dark spots where the neutrons are either going or not because, of course, the neutron behaves like a wave. Yeah, when nice it's little de yeah, wave. Yeah. That's right. It's the de Broglie wave. So Broglie. quantum mechanics coming right back at you. So particles... Uh, behave like waves, right? When they're mm -hmm. going at low energies enough and, and you can measure that phenomenon. So we can actually measure the interference pattern of the neutrons and we see a pattern of bright spots and dark spots basically where the neutrons are either going or they're not going. And what we're looking for is a shift due to the turning on and off of the chameleon interaction with gas. Now, I have to report, I'm very sad, we didn't see it in our experiment. We did not catch the chameleon field with our experiment, we really wanted to. And, of course, if we did, you'd be hearing about that. <laughs> but, um, but we're not done. We can, we can become more sensitive. Um, I should also, for a full disclosure, indicate that there's one experiment that's been done using atoms in an interferometry experiment. So in the okay. same way, but with the okay. atoms, are, they're optically cooled. So that's why I think it's an alkaline metal. In fact, I, so I by optically cool, you mean you just shoot some lasers at it and you trap them between some laser beams yep, until and it and stops you cool moving. Them down and then you... Uh, introduce them to a geometry where they go further away and closer to a large concentration of mass, which switches off the chameleon field. Right. And you look for an effect due to that being close to that that piece of metal. Um, that kind of experiment is very sensitive, uh, and they have a better limit than we do. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, we think we can improve our experiment quite a bit, and we may even go to, instead of having gas cells, we may actually go to that same idea of, having a piece of metal close to the experiment 
And because the chameleon field has a range actually switching on and off the chameleon field by just putting matter very close to the neutron beam. So these are improvements we have in mind where we hope to catch up with the, with the atom interferometry experiment. What, what candidates? Have we ruled out anything for dark energy and dark matter? Well, the chameleon field, being one of the very few candidates you can experimentally test, is being beaten on thoroughly by people. And uh, our experiments and the atom experiments do a very good job of beating a lot of the parameter space. Dark energy is, is really one of the big mysteries of modern science. There's very little that we can do to constrain these theories other than to look at the astrophysical observations. And, and those are becoming higher and higher quality. And from that, we know more and more about the details of the quality of the interaction and whether or not a cosmological constant, for example, can explain uh, what is going on or if we need to appeal to a more elaborate model. Those, those, are, those observations are, you know, they're, they're moving forward. Um, but it's slow and hard. The, the experimental tests are very limited. So it's exciting. We get to do it. We did yeah. that. We did that. We looked for a dark energy. We'll do a little more of that. Um, and we hope to rule out – I mean, look, what we hope to do, of course, is <laughs> discover the dark energy. Find it, yeah. Yeah, that would be like so cool, but but we're not going to do that because that would just be too awesome. But life will give <laughs> us the chance to put it, to constrain this particular theory and maybe rule it out. And that would be like for, for an experiment like myself who – is exploring new models of physics. That's that's part of what I do. That is like one of the trade goals that you know. That, that, and I'm in my trade. That's what you try strive for. You strive to help us rule out theories that don't work, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we're striving for here. We want to get rid of this chameleon theory and force you know theorists to come up with a better theory, a more better theory that explains what's going on. Hello all, and welcome to this week's episode of KNC Goes TMZ, with me, Jamie Halla. This past week marked another artist protesting the state of North Carolina for HB2, the infamous bathroom law that effectively acted as a time machine for the state, setting us back, oh, 50 to 60 years. The artist in question, Against Me, featuring transgender woman Laura Jane Grace, didn't opt out of playing Durham, North Carolina like quite a few artists have in the past months. Instead, she took the opportunity to protest the discrimination our state's leaders somehow think is okay by still playing the show. During the band's performance at the Motorco Music Hall on Sunday night, Laura Jane Grace burned her birth certificate on stage, exclaiming, Goodbye, gender. The show was sold out with 430 people standing in solidarity against the bill, which is just a small fraction of the state's population in opposition to the bill. Hopefully, these grassroots movements stemming from music and many other places will reach the ears of Pat McCrory. After months of anticipation, the 2016 Hopscotch lineup was finally announced last week and to great acclaim, and rightfully so. The lineup is exceptionally impressive and features artists that will appeal to fans of each genre. For the quote-unquote indie kids, there's heavy hitters Beach House, Andrew Bird, Wolf Parade, and smaller acts such as Level Up and Diet Sig. The hip-hop lineup this year is one to write home about for sure, because it's stellar, featuring performances from Erica Badu, Vince Staples, Milo, Wiki, and last but definitely not least is Young Thug. Hopscotch booked Young Thug, one of the hottest up-and-coming rappers from Atlanta, and I couldn't be more ecstatic as he is one of my favorite rappers in the game. Whew, just thinking about me gets all excited, and I don't get excited much these days. 
The metal lineup isn't too shabby either, featuring the likes of the infamous Converge, one of the heaviest acts around, Baroness, Yob, and Cobalt, who released one of my favorite metal albums so far in 2016. The lineup also features some quite impressive older acts, including Television and the first openly gay country band Lavender Country. This is just a selection of the immensely diverse lineup that features artists from all over the world and across many genres. A new thing that Hopscotch is implementing this year is the usage of a new venue, the Red Hat Amphitheater in downtown Raleigh. It has not been said yet who is playing the Red Hat, but Erica Badu is the top listed artist on the festival's lineup, so one could possibly assume she'll be performing at Red Hat. I could be wrong though. <laughs> Just, I could be. Let's just throw that out there. Could be somebody else. We'll have to wait and see. But this is just my prediction. Hopscotch will be held from September 8th to 10th in downtown Raleigh and is shaping up to be one heck of a festival that I am very excited for. This has been Jamie Hollow with Island Triangle, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Have a good week and maybe even a good Moog Fest? I don't know. I'll be there. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. And thus begins our first month of summer with today's review of Night Fades by Double King. For the vast majority of you who probably have no idea what that means, today's show marks the first episode of the Modest Mouth Review to be aired over our summer sessions, and, therefore, the first show I've recorded knowingly in advance to air without me being present. Therefore, hello from the past. I can't say how many more episodes of this you're in for, but for the remainder of the summer, this is how we'll be airing the show. So without further ado, today's album is, once again, Night Fades by Double King. The first question, as always, is, who are Double King? Honestly, who really knows? There's not a whole lot of info surrounding these guys, and what little I could find was on their Facebook page because their Squaresoft-based website has expired. Should have listened to the slogan, Double King. Squaresoft, pay your bills. Anyways, the gist of their origin is this. They're from Brooklyn, New York, and this is their debut album. That's really about it. There was nothing else that I could find out worth mentioning. Their last Facebook post is from July 2015, so I don't know if they're even still going or what they've got planned. I do know one thing, however. They are one of the only bands I've ever seen to use Vimeo to host their music. Timeless classic Vimeo with their slogan, Vimeo, what bills? Or user base. At any rate, case in point, these guys are pretty obscure, and this album serves as their first foray into the music world. So, what if the album itself... Well, it starts off relatively strong with the song Fire in the Attic. I don't mean like strong strong, but more like strong in comparison to everything else on the album. Fire in the Attic is not an amazing song, but at least it's pretty catchy and at times downright atmospheric. Where it fails is in its ability to properly capture your attention, as does the rest of the album. But 
One thing at a time, first let's talk about the instrumentation and genre. Night Fades features the use of classic rock instruments, the guitar, the basic drum kit, and the bass guitar. The album uses very minimal distortion and a slower beat to create a very relaxed, chill feel. The guitar is actually subdued even at its peak for the most part, and the drums never pick up much or venture from that slow, soulful beat that seems such a mainstay of adult contemporary. A major theme throughout most of the songs is that the instruments will frequently drop for a second or two to allow the vocals to come through unhindered in a Rod Stewart fashion. I guess it is pretty apt that they compared themselves to him in their bio because they actually have managed to capture a bit of his style. Unlike Rod Stewart, however, nothing about these songs really draws you in. While the tracks Fire in the Attic, Razor's Edge, and Northern Star come close, I didn't find myself able to differentiate them from each other until my third or fourth listen. It's like the band managed to flawlessly copy all of the elements of adult contemporary without ever adding anything interesting of their own. There's no real innovation, no originality, there's just a lifeless husk of an album caught dead in the water wearing a leisure suit and holding a copy of the best of Rod Stewart. It's like, look dude, I love Maggie Mae just as much as the next guy, but I've heard it before, by a seasoned artist, no less. You can't pull a rabbit out of a hat and call it a new trick, there's gotta be a piece of yourself in there, and right now, I just don't see it. Sure, there's a few things the album does right, but that's not to the credit of Double King, it's to the credit of everyone who did it a thousand times before them, and now it's not really that impressive. Do I feel bad for not being that kind to this album? Yeah, a little. Others have certainly taken a different tone with it, and for a debut it's really not that bad, but all the same, even with the potential it shows, it's just not worth a whole lot to me. Maybe if they're not done forever, Double King can knock it out of the park with their next album, but for now, I can't say I'm all that impressed. For my final rating on a scale of negative 2 to 7, I gotta give this album a 1. It's not bad, but it's also not good or even average. That said, if you're craving some more smooth rock of the modern age, maybe this one will tickle your fancy. The album is, once again, Night Fades by Double King. I don't know if it's on Spotify, but hey, who needs that when you've got Vimeo, the single least used popular video service on the web. That's all for today. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Linz, Plesk, Meerkat, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. As always, you can send in a review request by tweeting at WKNC underscore EOT, though I probably won't see it for the next, like, three months. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time. This is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and this week I will be taking a look at the film Only God Forgives.
This week I decided to take a look at a somewhat controversial film. It seems that people will either like it or hate it. It's pretty easy to see why, too. The style is out of the ordinary, and the pace of the film is extremely slow. With that being said, though, I found a lot to like in the movie. Only God Forgives was released in July of 2013 in the U.S., and when it first came out, it received the mixed reviews that still hang around the movie. The movie's odd style is what mostly divides the opinions on the film, and the excess violence can only add to that. The film doesn't shy away from taboo and asks questions about what justice means to those who have stepped outside of the law. When dealing with such immoral principles, a film can likely expect to have a divided audience. The movie goes straight into the thick of the plot. There's not really an introduction, and before we know it, the characters are dying. This is odd, as the rest of the film moves so slowly. The viewer is abruptly brought into the world and slowly introduced to many of its intricacies. The characters may not necessarily develop throughout the story, as their principles seem to stay the same from the start, but the main character, played by Ryan Gosling, is a changed man to many around him. How he acts is unpredictable to them. The search for retribution in the movie is relentless, every side seeking to redeem another fallen companion. You find yourself with no one to root for, and become so entangled in trying to figure out why people even are doing the horrible things that they are. The pace of the movie is beyond the norm for most movies. As I said before, there is only a minor introduction to the story, which leaves you trying to sort out the details of the plot while it still continues. But immediately after this abrupt start, the scenes begin to slow down. Every moment takes its time, and I was definitely glad they did because of how beautiful the movie is. Every frame is something to study. Each scene is elaborately decorated or set so that I couldn't help but wonder how long it took the design team to come up with each set. This also played a part in slowing down the movie as I caught myself paying attention to the background and not the actual action of the scenes. The weird part about how slow the movie felt was how short it ends up being in total. The movie is only about an hour and a half, and it felt like it was at least two hours. They fit an impressive amount in story into that short hour and a half. The majority of the film is only music and video. There's not a lot of talking done by the characters. It adds a feeling of being in between talking all the time that adds to the already slow filming of the movie. You are anticipating the next dialogue scene, and the intensity of that anticipation never disappoints. The acting has to be superb for this to work because you get so much story from facial expressions. The emotion of every face has to be clear. This story and style is hard to pull off. The topic is polarizing, and the way in which it is portrayed is certainly unusual. The man that directed the film, Nicholas Winding Refn, also directed Bronson, which I reviewed last year. I really did not like the film, and I can see many similarities between the two. Bronson moves slowly like Only God Forgives does, but it doesn't build story like it does. It lacks the clarity to do so, and I think that Only God Forgives is done far better. The fact that there is so much similarity in style between Bronson and Only God Forgives, and I like one and really dislike the other, shows how on point a film has to be to do this style of film correctly. I'm going to give this movie an 8.5 out of 10. The visuals were amazing, the acting was on point, and it told a compelling story of betrayal, family, and justice. The two things that I felt could have been done better, and what keeps me from giving this movie a higher score, is having a more relatable plot, which is a weak criticism at best, and the pace of the story was well done, but could have been sped up at many points. This movie is currently on Amazon for free, so I highly recommend you give it a chance. It definitely isn't for everyone, but for those who do like it, it is fantastic. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle and Snowverated. Have a good night.
You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. The time is 4.31, and I'm Marissa Jordan. The controversial HB2 might have an effect on North Carolina tourism this summer. Many tourist destinations, like Emerald Isle, the Outer Banks, and Asheville, have seen an increase in cancellations and loss of revenue. Emerald Isle Realty, which manages around 700 vacation homes, has heard from regular customers that they will not be returning this summer because of the bill. So far, this has added up to 29 lost nights of rentals and around $20,000 in revenue. In addition, cities like Charlotte and Greensboro are losing revenue from canceled conventions that can be worth up to millions of dollars. Concerned vacationers have been emailing North Carolina businesses to see the impact that the bill could have on their stay. Emerald Isle Realty has received emails saying that their old customers will be traveling to Georgia this summer, which recently vetoed a similar bill. The city that could be most affected from loss of tourism is Asheville. Asheville tourism officials had the highest amount of negative feedback about HB2. Stephanie Brown, the executive director of Buncombe County Tourism Development Authority, says she has received 60 emails from tourists who have changed their plans because of the bill. This loss of tourism will not be a major hit to North Carolina this year, but it's hard to foresee what the long-term effects could be. Thanks, Marissa. I'm Ian Grice with your community calendar. This Thursday through Sunday, Moogfest, an electronic music and technology festival, will be held in Durham from 9 a.m. to 1 a.m. most nights. This festival is held in honor of Robert Moog, the inventor of the Moog synthesizer. Marissa, Jamie, and I will be there uh, with our old co-host, Mirtha Donastorg. You can see my schedule of events that I'm going to be going to at blog.wknc.org. On Friday, Bike to Work Day will be held at NC State's Centennial Campus at the intersection of Main Campus Drive and Varsity Drive. This day focuses on celebrating those across the state of North Carolina who bike to work. Fashion Unchained will be held from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. at Artspace this Saturday. This event will showcase unique fashion from local boutiques, local food, local beer and wine, live music, and a silent auction. The North Carolina Botanical Gardens will be hosting a public tree climbing event from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. on Saturday, May 20th. This event will be during the garden's annual plant sale. There will be live music and food trucks. We'd like to thank our staff and contributors of Jamie Halla, Jake Winters, Nick Weaver, and Alex Hoppy, and all of our guests that made the show possible. As always, if you've heard anything you've liked, you've hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Marissa Jordan, wishing you all a fantastic Wednesday afternoon.